Joining me right now is David Murrah. Uh, as a matter of fact, we actually talked about one of the books he was involved with earlier. He's a poet, writer of creator, non creator of nonfiction and fiction, critic and playwright. He's the author of Strange Journey, Race, Identity, and Narrative Craft in Writing, and also as well, you know, Where the Body Meets Memory, an Odyssey of Race, Sexuality, and Identity. He is the co-editor with Carolyn Holbrook, who we had on the air when this book came out. We are meant to rise, the voices of, for justice from Minneapolis to the world. Uh, he lives in Minneapolis. He's kind enough to join us today to talk about his latest book, The Stories, Whiteness Tells Itself, Racial Myths, and Our American Narratives. David, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Well, thank you for having me. My, my pleasure. And I do want to mention you do have an event that's going to be coming on up here. Uh, this is going to be uh, over at Eastside Freedom Library on June 13th from 7 till 1030. You're going to be talking about this book. And, and, and congratulations. This is, this is a weighty subject, to say the least. What, what prompted you to say, you know what, someone needs to address this because I agree with you wholeheartedly. There is, it is amazing to find the, the, how these narratives within white racism have basically been with us a long time. Yes, well, I, I had been writing some, uh, well, throughout my life about race, but when uh, Flandel Castile was killed on Larpenter Road, mm-hmm. um, I, along with various other members of the Twin Cities community, was very upset at what happened. I knew people who knew him, and so I began writing about what happened on Larpenter Road in his encounter with Officer Yanez. And I realized that I couldn't really understand it, and I don't think other people could understand what happened unless we went back into American history and understanding the way we construct narratives around race in this country. And I was struck at the time with the fact that in conservative circles, they would say things like, it doesn't matter whether he was uh, guilty or innocent of anything. It was just like the police stopped him and he was shot, and that's just the way things are. Yeah. And uh, and I began reading, and I began reading things like how in the 19th century, right after the Civil War, when black people became citizens, the question of, you know, who are black people, what, what, what you know, how are they as citizens? They did these studies where any crime committed by a black person was considered um, evidence of the inherent criminality of black people. But when these same sociologists or pseudo-sociologists, false sociologists, did their studies, if a white person committed a crime, that was just attributed to the individual white person. It didn't cast disdain on white people. It didn't say anything in general about white people. And generally, it was explained by social economic circumstances. They were poor. They were out of work. And so things like that contribute to the way we construct these narratives in society. If, if and I... I began going back to Jefferson, to Lincoln, to Reconstruction, and also to fictional and movie narratives. Uh, about our past. What you're explaining there is, I, I pointed this out the other day. We have a woman, I think she's up in North Branch. She's a, a white woman who basically defrauded the system and, you know, stole, you know, over a million dollars of fraud. I mean, pure fraud. 
you don't even hear about that story. But the Feeding Our Future story, which is basically the same exact story, got wide coverage. Why? Because there was a lot more black people involved in there, and that was that was the driving need. Well, we can't do this because we shouldn't even be trying to help these people because of this. Meanwhile, a white woman does it up in North Branch, and hardly even a peep from the media. I mean, it, it really is interesting how even still today— those narratives that you just described are very present wherever you look on how we even just talk about the news of crimes in this in this state. No, and and if somebody robs something from a you know convenience store and they're shot, no, you know it's just like that's that's what happens. Yeah, and yet people can steal millions of dollars, right? And oftentimes they never go to jail because they they can pay for great lawyers. And so, but I, I think one of the things I realized in writing this the, the story Whiteness tells itself is that racism works in our society at a very uh, oftentimes deep and unconscious level. You know, take for instance, you know, there's a rule which I think exists in our society, which is that white knowledge is always valid, objective, true, and official. White knowledge is valid, true, objective, and official. But black knowledge is always uh, invalid, subjective, false or suspicious, and unofficial, unless white people decree it's official. And this this rule exists whether we're talking about uh, black accounts of narratives of their encounters with the police. We know that black people wait longer and oftentimes don't receive pain medication for the same conditions, and when they do receive pain medication, they receive less pain medication than white people for the same conditions. And so what that means is physicians or ER people don't necessarily um, accept the narratives of black people saying, I feel pain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so this, this evaluation of knowledge goes everywhere in this society. It goes to when Ron DeSantis says that the uh, the governor of Florida says that the AP history uh, uh, African-American studies course lacks educational value. Well, it's like the course was created by African-American writers and African-American scholars with PhDs. DeSantis doesn't have a PhD in African-American mm-hmm. studies. He's not an African-American writer. He hasn't studied the African-American experience. And yet he believes that he can deem this course not educational. And the other thing about it is, let's think about what happened when the Africans came to America. The slave owner said, you can't teach your language. You can't teach your culture. You can't teach your history. What is DeSantis saying to African Americans? No, you're not qualified to teach your own history, your own culture. It's the same thing. Same thing hundreds of years later. I, I, your book is broken down. You talk about part one, the part, present moment. You talk about Philando Castile. And I'm, I'm glad you did because I remember that. And I remember sitting here saying, okay, wait a minute. None of this makes any damn sense. What do you mean you put five rounds into the guy? You know, he just, you know, he, you know, he apparently was telling you he had, you know, he had a concealed carry and you, you shot him. And not only that, you know, th- there was a lot of ignoring and, and, and almost, 
you know, excuse making that went from everyone. I mean, the jury member having a, uh, you know, the jury having a member from that owned a gas station that was servicing the police departments, which is a clear, you know, conflict of interest there. That was, I was shocked that she was on there. And then, you know, and of course that the fact that the, the NRA, if this was a white person that was shot with a gun would have been all over it, but was, didn't even say a peep. The fact that Philando Castillo yeah, got done. Yeah, he had to have valid license for the gun. And one of the things when I talk in public about Philando Castillo is he was stopped 55 times in 10 years by the police. God. His mother says that it was more like 80 times, but some of these stops weren't official. You know, when I speak to white audiences, I ask, how many times have you been stopped in the last 10 years by the police? Five, some hands go up. Ten, Fewer hands, 15 fewer hands. I, you know, I get to 20, and nobody's been stopped 20 times in the last 10 years by the police. Mm-hmm. He was stopped 55 to 80 times by the police in 10 years. And he must have felt like, you know, there's no escaping. I'm bound to be, you know, killed or, or something terrible happened to me if I'm being stopped this many times. And so the other thing I felt is that he was under this constant threat, which black people feel, of driving while black. And yet, when he worked at the school that he worked in St. Paul, everybody spoke about what a great guy he was. One parent described him as Mr. Rogers with dreadlocks, that he knew the names of all the children, he knew what food they liked, he knew their allergies, and he treated all of these children, black, white, at the school, with great love. And so people admire, you know, thought he was a good guy. But to think about the fact that he was constantly dealing with the police like this, and yet he still was able not to treat the world with anger and resentment. And his mother talks about that. Mm-hmm. So he was really much more remarkable than even people who were well disposed to him, if they were white, would understand, because they didn't realize he'd been stopped 55 to 80 times in the last 10 years by the police. The it is you know remarkable you're joining me on the 30th anniversary of George Floyd because I think if not for Philando Castile I don't know if the city would have exploded as it did after George Floyd because once again we had video evidence of what the black community had been saying for all these years they get mistreated we had video empirical proof that they were telling the truth that here is four police officers murdering a man in the streets and the thing which was crazy was I just remember how the police department still kept going with their usual narrative that George Floyd was the bad guy. The police officers deserve commendations. He was a bad person. He, he got what he deserved. And I was like, and I I think that that was, you know, that moment there when we realized, no, none of that makes any damn sense. And the fact today that you still have a lot of people, especially on the right, that still want to turn it into the only thing that matters was the precinct getting burnt down. Not the fact that four police officers murdered George Floyd in the streets. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, you know, defend the destruction of property during not at all, drive, not at all. But no. we, we have to think, you know, there's been the rise of what is called white Christian nationalism, and really, it's not Christianity people are talking about. You know, when they they talk about, you know, uh, for instance, there was a man in New York subway, uh, Jordan McNeely, who you know had mental issues, and uh, this this white Marine on, on, on the train put him in a chokehold and he died. And people are calling him a good Samaritan. Well, if you know anything about Christianity, you know, no, the good Samaritan 
was the, somebody was beaten and in the ditch, and the Good Samaritan didn't kill the person. No. The Good Samaritan attended to his wounds and brought him to his house and fed him. So how do we get from that parable, which is one of generosity and love and, 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 and warmth, to a Good Samaritan, somebody who chokes somebody to death? I don't understand it, really, on, on some basic, basic level. I want to bring up uh, the, 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 the fact that, that we have basically um, just today, just today, Wisconsin Rep- Representative Glenn Grothman is on the House floor complaining that Biden isn't nominating enough straight white guys as judges. We had Steve Driskowski, the, the senator in, in the state of Minnesota, complain earlier this year about their, their, the, how the equality provision doesn't do enough for white people. You know, it it it, it just it, and now you've got this whole thing where if you talk about in in anything that goes against him, whether it's black or the LGBTQ community, the the first thing is to accuse you of being the worst thing in the world to basically turn their irrational arguments against you into something they they consider to be valid. It really is disturbing to see how much what you have pointed out here is still, I mean, coming from hundreds of years ago, is still in place today because, and you can't shake this. I don't know how we're going to be able to shake this. Well, you you know, uh, first of all, the vast majority of federal judges are straight white males. Yes. Still. I mean, that's just a fact. But what I think people don't realize is the value of diversity. And in the stories whiteness tells itself, I introduced them. I'm a third-generation Japanese-American. My parents were imprisoned by the United States government at ages 11 and 15 during World War II because people suspected them, the community of being uh, spies. Now, no one was ever convicted of any espionage. And in the 1980s, they discovered that the military had actually done a study which concluded the Japanese community was not a military threat but lied to the public. Now, even while these families in, uh, were, were in prison, what America realized is we don't have any white Japanese speakers. We have white Italian speakers. We have white German speakers. So we have to go to this population that we've imprisoned to find Japanese speakers. And I've done a documentary about this called Armed with Language, which is a Twin Cities public television Emmy-winning documentary. And... General MacArthur's chief of intelligence, General Willoughby, said that these Japanese-American linguists shortened the war in the Pacific by two years and saved a million American lives. And many of them did this even while they signed up out of, after being imprisoned by the American government and their families in prison. And what this shows is the value of diversity, just like the Navajo Code Talkers because people know about them because of the movies. Diversity is our strength. It's not our weakness. And diversity should not be a threat because we're we're a a creative society because we're so diverse. People want to come from all over the world because we are diverse, because they believe they can can be part of America. And why do we want to throw all that away? Just, it, it, it is not useful. Mm-hmm. It, it's just stupid. And that's the other thing about racism. Racism is really stupid and inefficient. It, it doesn't make 
society run better. It doesn't make businesses run better. It doesn't make governments run better. And I, I, I'm just a level of practicality. You know, these, these Japanese-American linguists who studied at Fort Snelling were a valuable asset to America. And yet America treated them as if they were spies. Treated their families as if they were spies. And one of them said, you know, it, 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 there's a big contradiction here because, like, we're working for the military intelligence service, and yet, you know, they still kept us in prison. Yeah. The uh, and and by the way, and I always think you know racism is is the is the foil of the weak people who basically when they look in the mirror have to blame someone else for all their problems, and so they eagerly jump into the worst of our mentalities and our psyches so that they can basically make themselves feel better about being a screw up, and and I think that that is and I, and I I will stand by that because I think that that is you know, there's just this, this ingratiated element here and it's taught by parents. It's taught by this because it, you know, it wasn't you, it was them. And that's, and that, I, I find it to be horrible. Your book, by the way, and I, we, we, we don't have much more time here, but you I mentioned the, it talks about the present case, starting with Philando Castile. It talks about a, a great deep dive into the history of where these racist standards came from. You talk about part three here, where do we go from here? And I don't want to necessarily get into that, but I, I do think one of the hardest parts I've found is trying to convince people that just because we have equality, that doesn't mean you're giving anything up. That it's not pie. You know, it's not everyone gets a slice of pie. It's just we're going to make sure everyone gets treated the same way. And the way that so many people look at that as a threat to them, because I think down deep inside, they know they got an advantage over everyone else. Yeah. And here's the thing I do want to say about talking about this. And I, 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 I say this in my book, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, is I don't think we move people by shaming and guilting them. I think we move people through knowledge and love. And so, you know, when, when I'm writing a book about the existence of systemic racism in America, I want people to think about that question, think about the proof I'm lying down in the book about why that might be the case, but I, I don't want the individual white person to go, like, I'm a bad person. Like, that's not my purpose in writing the book. I, I, I don't know you. I don't know whether you're a good or bad person. That's not really the point. The point is, like, blacks and whites smoke marijuana at exactly the same rate when it was illegal, you know, as it is in other states. And yet blacks were four times more likely to be arrested than white people, right, for the same crime. Mm-hmm. And then when they were arrested, they were far more likely to go to trial, far more likely to be convicted, far more likely to serve sentences, and far more likely to serve longer sentences for the same crime. And you can't look at that statistic, those statistics, and say it's not systemic. So it's not about you as an individual. It's about you recognizing that we have a system of racial bias and that no one ultimately benefits from it. Because what you're doing when you do that is you're not really allowing the the capacity of, of citizens to contribute to society. You're actually shackling people's ability to contribute. And we should all be able to come to the table and be who we are. And that shouldn't be a threat. That should be part of the gift and the greatness of America. David, your book is so good, I could only dream that the people that need to read this book will. I mean, I really do. And I think it is such it is a well done book. And I think you nail it 1000%. And I think it is important. 
And uh, yeah, you you are definitely your presentation is a lot better than mine would ever be. That's for sure. The story's whiteness tells itself. Racial myths in our American narrative. David Murrah. Once again, I do want to mention he's going to be at Eastside Freedom Library. This is coming up on June 13th from 7 till 10:30 p.m. to talk about this book. David, I, gosh, I, I I don't I wish I didn't have to cut this short. I I want you to come on back. Let's discuss this another time if we can. Is that is that okay? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. I my, really appreciate it. My pleasure. David Murrah joining us. Let's take a break, get, in, uh, get into the end of the show here for this hour. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950.